Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. I'm your host, Rick Lee James, and I'm very glad that you joined us once again. Today we have a very special guest, Michael Poteet, who is actually a writer and contributor to the SciFiChristian.com. Many of you uh, are listening to this show now probably because you heard me on the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast. I know we have a lot of crossover with that show, and I really appreciate Matt and Ben so much. But what we don't always get to hear on that show is the behind the scenes that's going on. And so people like Michael, uh, who is on the show today, are people who contribute to the site. Um, Michael is a writer of religious curriculum. Uh, He has a lot of of really interesting things to say, and he's sort of what drives the behind the scenes at the Sci-Fi Christian website. So uh, we're going to have a discussion in just a few moments here that's a little bit of a springboard off of two episodes ago when Brandon Sipes was my guest and we talked about the culture of fear and what that means. And we're going to be discussing sort of the culture of fear part two and we're going to be using a classic episode of the Twilight Zone to talk about this. But before we get any further into that, Michael Poteet, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself a little more deeply than what I was able to just then. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for inviting me on, Rick. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. I've enjoyed listening to it and to your music. Um, congratulations, by the way, on the new album, Getting Ready to Come Out. I've been thank listening you. to that setting of St. Patrick's Breastplate over and over. I really like it a lot. Oh, so, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm very proud of that song. Well, you should be. You should be. It's a great song, and, and all your music I've heard is great. And again, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, as you said, I do write for the Sci-Fi Christian blog. Um, calling me the power behind the scenes is maybe a little generous. I, I don't <laughs> want to take too much credit, but I, I do uh, contribute to the blog as I can. And uh, it's an extension of my my ministry. I, I am an ordained Presbyterian minister and uh, not currently serving as a church pastor, although I did that for seven years and had a good experience doing that. But now I'm really focused in a, a writing ministry. I write a lot of, as you said, religious education curriculum, primarily for the United Methodist Publishing House. Wow. Pieces for children and youth and adults. Um, the youth and adult pieces are very exciting because, um, as you could probably tell from what I write for the Sci-Fi Christian, I have a lot of interest in bringing together pop culture and theology and I get to do that with the youth and adult pieces primarily the youth pieces I write for a uh, a curriculum that's published weekly called link it stands for living in Christ hmm. and we take some event from the news or from the pop culture and spin uh, Bible lessons and uh, faith formation lessons out of that uh, the adult piece is called faith link that's also a weekly curriculum. It's more strictly focused on current events and news stories, um, so not as much pop culture there, although I did get to write an essay for Superman's 75th anniversary. Hey, and, all right. And that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Well, and I, I would have to say that you're one of my fellow Superman fans. You know, it seems, yeah. it seems like it's so hard to find anybody that really likes Superman. It's like Batman gets all the glory for some reason. But Yeah, you know. yeah. I was, uh, I was disappointed that Man of Steel is getting followed up with uh, uh, Batman v Superman kind of well, not kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly what it is. Plus the Justice League, so yeah. I hope they'll give Superman another shot at uh, filling out his own movie one of these days. Now, now, before we get too far into this, do you care to make any prediction as to what's going to happen in this movie? Because I, I have my own thoughts, but I'm almost hesitant to share them. But 
Well, have you seen the trailer? I've seen the trailer. Yeah. It seems like they spell out many of the major plots <laughs> in the trailer. Well, I, I have this theory that the reason we don't see, you know, DC put out this long docket. By the way, listeners, sorry, indulge me for a moment in my <laughs> in my nerdiness here with a fellow Superman fan. But as DC laid out their, or Warner Brothers rather, laid out their docket of all the comic book movies that are coming out, there is not a Superman solo film in sight. And I just can't help but wonder if they're going to kill him in this movie uh with the doomsday fight to try to reenact there is doomsday around there is doomsday and i and i i almost would be for that in some small way only because i think it would present him as the hero that he is and the selfless hero that he is if they treat it like they did in the book when he died uh and of course he comes back and resurrects or whatever they do so i'm sure they would work that in the film but i've i've wondered if that's the reason we're not seeing a solo film at least in the near future because they don't want to advertise like that but we'll see who knows what's going to happen with that but that could be interesting i mean it worked so well in the comics because at that point Superman had, what, 50 or 60 years of history as right. the selfless, accomplished hero. If So in this continuity where all we've got is Man of Steel and he's, I guess, the charitable interpretation is he's working up to that. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I don't know how much people would miss this Superman yeah. if he's gone. <laughs> you never know. They'd have to do it really well, but... Well, we, we yeah, we probably better get back on the on the subject at hand, but it's always fun to geek out a little bit with Superman talk. So, um, well, should we move into into our discussion today and why we picked this particular episode of Twilight Zone? Well, let's do that. I wanted to find out though from you uh, how long you've been interested in the Twilight Zone and how you got exposed to it. And... Well, I think, and I'm, I was trying to remember that uh, when I was preparing for this podcast. I want to say it was probably elementary school like third fourth grade that range and i remember where we were living um around indiana i have a lot of family in that area and i remember it was either labor day or memorial day maybe both they would always have these 24-hour telethons of television shows you know or or, are they called no marathons not telethons telethon would be jerry lewis not that (laughs) um but these marathons of television shows and some years it would be star trek for 24 hours some years it would be various other shows and uh, I think it was Three Stooges one year, and I always uh-huh. loved all those things, you know. But then when Twilight Zone was on, I was like, that's my earliest memory that I remember seeing these old classic reruns, and I just couldn't wait for the next show to come. There was something about it that just really stirred my imagination as a kid. And yeah. you know, to be honest, not all of the episodes are winners. I, I think there's some <laughs> some some real duds in the series. To be honest, some of them I watch waiting for there to be that clever ending. And I think right. it, I think it almost suffers from M Night Shyamalan syndrome. You know, in some ways, it's like he. You know, M. Night Shyamalan came on with that one really strong movie, The Sixth Sense, and then uh-huh. after that, everybody expected the twist ending was going to be just as strong from there on out. And it's really hard to to keep that up. So so I think yeah. the show suffers a little bit from that because every week you come back expecting it to be this ending that just grabs you and, and is so profound. Uh, but there are some really good shows, and this particular episode has always been a favorite of mine and as i've become an adult the the significance behind it has just meant more and more to me especially when discussing the the culture of fear that we seem to find ourselves in today so so how about you i talked too much in that but how about you what's your history with the show no no, not at all I, i was just a little bit older than you then and i got introduced to the twilight zone by a a friend i had in middle school who i really looked up to uh we were both in band and he was a couple of years ahead of me he played the saxophone, and I thought that was so cool. I was stuck playing the tuba. <laughs> not not as cool as the saxophone. But uh, for whatever reason, I would you know offer to carry his bag for him home from school every day, and I think he liked having an admirer like that. Anyway, he was into the Twilight Zone, and um, it wasn't currently on in our in our television market back then. This was you know 1980 something, so before the days of on demand or or streaming video certainly so if it wasn't on in your local market of three or four channels you were out of luck right but he'd seen some and he had he had bought um mark scott zacree's twilight zone companion oh and this was number one i'd never heard of such a thing of a book that was just an episode guide to a tv series <laughs> i thought well that's really cool and so i borrowed his copy 
and eventually begged my mom to get me my own copy. So I, I read that thing literally until the spine fell apart and pages were falling out. I read it and reread it, and so I knew a lot of these stories before I ever saw them on television. Wow. There are some episodes I still think I haven't seen, but I know the story because right. I've, I read Mark Scott's Accrued <laughs> book so much. Eventually, our local PBS station started showing Twilight Zone reruns, mm. and I was I was hooked. Wow! Um, the first one I watched um, was a fifth season episode called "A Certain Kind of Stopwatch," and it's about a really annoying guy who gets a stopwatch that enables him to freeze the world around him. Oh, right! Yeah, I remember that one. And at the end, well, you remember what happens at the end, then, right? Uh huh. Yeah he he drops the watch, it breaks, and he's he's stuck. He can't get unstuck. This is the first one I'd seen, and, and I, I, I was up late sick one night watching it, and my mom was still up, and I said, when it was over, I said, well, that's not it, is it? She said, yeah, that, that's it. That's how they all did, you know? <laughs> which is a little bit of a sweeping overgeneralization, yeah. but you know, I got the point. So, um, so that was the first one I watched, and that made a real impression on me, and then, as I said, I met this guy in middle school and started reading about it, uh, and so ever since then, I've just really admire the series and as you say it's it's definitely uh not hitting on all thrusters start to finish all five years but i think there's more uh more gems than than duds yeah. when you look at the series as a whole and this one that we're going to talk about today is definitely one of the one of the outstanding episodes i think it was sometime early in the 2000s time magazine picked it as one of the 10 best of the entire series. And and I think when the episodes shine, they really shine. I mean, they're just Absolutely. they're just incredibly profound in in what they're saying and and Rod Serling, by the way, I, I, pardon me for interrupting you in the midst of that, no. but Rod Serling, uh, I didn't realize this until just a couple years ago. He went to college at Antioch College uh, just down the road from where I live now. And oh, okay. uh, and so I where I go to the comic shop every week actually to buy my comic books or every couple weeks. Uh, um, that's actually the town where Rod Serling went to school and studied and learned how to write. And really, there's a lot of history with the Twilight Zone so close to me that I didn't even realize. And, that's fantastic. And Rod Serling, I, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but Rod Serling was, to me, a genius of using something like sci-fi to not just show like you know aliens and spaceships and and you know weird things like that but he was actually doing social commentary on what was going on in the world at that present moment yeah. um using it in a way that if he hadn't used sci-fi they probably would not let it let him address these issues um things like war and things you know just different things that were going on around in the society of the day um and not a lot of people know i don't think anyway that he was actually the the, the screenplay writer for Planet of the Apes. Yes, he was. And so he's there's a lot of history uh, I, I think that people don't know. And and he was just a really really bright guy. So I'm I'm proud that he went to school here in Ohio, and uh, we have that kind of history with him. So yeah, yeah. He was in an interesting time in television because he started out when live drama was still the the thing. Yeah. You know? It was still considered prestigious for the networks to showcase live drama on television. Mm. And, um, you know, so he wrote some very socially relevant scripts. He wrote a thing called Patterns. He wrote one called Requiem for a Heavyweight that dealt with real issues about society and injustice and fighting for the little guy. Um, and, and as, and this is my understanding, as television sort of became more about the commercialization of the product than about the product itself. Um, and and the, the, the shift was away from the prestige of live drama to something that was a little more palatable to a mass audience. Sure. Um, he really was looking for a way to, to continue to inject social relevance into television. Yeah. He really thought it was a, a medium with tremendous potential to spark important conversations and to influence people's uh, opinions and inspire them to action even. But uh, it was becoming harder and harder to do because the networks didn't want to create controversy because you lose ad revenue and you lose viewership and, you know, and, and it's a business. Yeah. And it increasingly became 
all about the business. And so Twilight Zone was very definitely, I mean, I think he played it down in interviews with the media at the time, but it was very definitely his self-conscious attempt to continue to, to make television matter yeah. and to try to say something meaningful. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. He did, it. he did it very well through Twilight Zone. Well, let's let's go ahead and, and get into one of his better episodes, like you said, one of the top ten shows of the series, as it's been called. And the episode is called, if, if you saw the show notes, you already know this, listeners, but just in case you were waiting in suspense, the episode is called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And one thing that strikes me immediately in, in watching this show is we might as well just call Maple Street Mayberry, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because it, it really is designed, and I, I don't know the chronology exactly. I'm assuming Andy Griffith was already on TV at this time whenever Twilight Zone was out, uh, but I, I don't know exactly. But whatever time frame it was, it was very close, and the episode opens with a setting that looks very much like Mayberry. Um, you have this street full of children that are playing and adults that are talking, and there's suddenly this shadow that passes over uh, the city. There's a there's a roar and a flash of light. And if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to read the opening narration that Rod Serling gives to the show just to kind of set up the episode. And I'll I'll try to do my best Rod Serling voice as I speak. I, I do not I do not even have anything close to a Rod Serling impersonation, but but he would say something like this: Maple Street, USA, late summer, a tree-lined little world of front porch gliders, barbecues, the laughter of children, and the bell of an ice cream vendor. At the sound of the roar and the flash of light, it will be precisely 6:43 p.m. on Maple Street. This is Maple Street on a late Saturday afternoon. Maple Street, in the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. <laughs> and, and, well yeah. done. You know, you, you bit off those phrases really well, just like Well, Sterling thank would. you so much. And I love that last phrase, you know, in the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. So... As yeah, a kid watching yeah. this, I'm in anticipation the whole time of, ooh, there's going to be monsters. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, in the episode, there are monsters, but they're not what you expect they're going to be. So Right. You know, this was early enough. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. To, to interrupt you. I was going to say, this is early enough in the series where he hadn't yet hit on the idea of ending both the opening and the closing narrations with the phrase, the Twilight mm. Zone. Um, and that's something... He's famous for. In fact, recently on the Late Show, Stephen Colbert did a a series of mock lost episodes of the oh. Twilight Zone, and part of the shtick was the introductions to them got more and more uh, ridiculous, but they all ended with the phrase. Oh. <laughs> <I like that. laughs> but th but this one, Serling still felt free to let the uh, the narration end where it naturally sure. would, and then we'll get to the. I, I won't yeah. steal our thunder, but we'll get. To Closing narration, he uses that wrap-up phrase, the Twilight Zone, in a very, That's very right. He, he way. certainly does. So that was the that was the opening narration, and, and as I said, that you have this scene of Maple Street. You might as well call it Mayberry because it looks like Mayberry. Everything's happy and clean and white picket fences and pristine. And several adults, you know, um, I mean, all, all of them are kind of gathered together. I, I don't remember exactly. I think some of them are maybe washing their cars and doing different things. But there's yeah. this roar and this flash of light in the sky. And that's pretty much all there is at first. And everybody just kind of wonders, hmm, what was that? You know, maybe it's a meteor that's gone by. Um, but they soon start to discover that their power has been cut. That's um, affecting their stoves, their lawnmowers, um, their phones aren't working. Somebody says, my radio stopped working. Um, and, and the crowd starts gathering together in the street to discuss this situation. And there's a person named Pete Van Horn who volunteers to walk out of the neighborhood and he, to discover the extent of the problem. And he's wondering, if is this beyond our neighborhood? So he goes to check the gas station. And then his neighbor, um, Steve Brand, who is played by Claude Akins, who, by the way, will be an ape in one of the Planet of the Apes sequels later on. Yeah, oh, really? <laughs> you don't know it because he's under all the uh, makeup and stuff. It's, it's one of the worst right. Planet of the Apes movies, but he's in there. Um, uh, <laughs> Claude Aikens plays Steve Brand, 
and uh, and he wants to go into town but Tommy who is to me this this irritating local boy <laughs> um he kind of catalyzes this situation and makes it worse and he urges him you know Mr. Brand don't leave that's that's what the monsters want you to do um and it reminds me of honestly back to the future because this little boy is saying it's in my comic books <laughs> you know and oh you know I, I, I hadn't made that Parallel, well, but yeah, I right. had wondered, yeah. and I have no idea if that's the influence on it, but if, if you remember, you know, when Michael J. Fox immediately goes uh-huh. through that barn in Back to the Future when he goes to the past, this little boy says, no, he's an alien, look at my comic book, it says, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it almost is reminiscent of that, and uh, and I, I really, I strongly feel like that was probably an influence on that scene in the movie, but I'm would not surprise me in the least. <laughs> so, so this nice. this kid and his comic books instigates the problem uh, right here on the street. It says they don't want you to go to town, and it's it's. I'll be honest, it's not a good case for us comic book loving people in the world at this point because he starts to. Well, you know what struck me at this point in the episode is everybody when the when the flash and the the sound occur at, at six forty three. Everybody takes it pretty Very much in stride. Much. Yes. I mean, you know, oh, well, that, that's odd. But it's not until Tommy, like you said, raises this issue of the monsters and introduces this idea that the monsters have sent an advanced team who look like <laughs> humans. And You know, why do you think it is everybody listens to that so quickly? I mean, uh, well, they're, they're doing pretty well up until Tommy, even when he starts in about don't leave town, they don't want us to leave town. You know, Steve is all, oh, it's fine, I'll go, and you'll see, there's no problem. But then he, he, he mentions this thing about the advanced squad yeah. of aliens, and uh, and every, and there's this long pan shot across the crowd, and they're all really, like, this has never occurred yeah. to them as a possibility. They're all really considering it. What is it about that that, well, that makes well, them listen, you think? Again, I, I think this is allegorical in a lot of ways, and so I think... Where, where we're hearing aliens and monsters and things like that, I think the underlying sentiment is some other people group. Like, I, I think what Serling is writing about is, is uh, uh, well, let's see, at that time period, who would have been sort of the enemy? The Russians, I guess, or um, uh, maybe Cuba or, or people like that at that time. And so immediately, if we can find some source of what the problem is you know like immediately and say um and i uh, like this is the jews are the problem or the germans are the problem or the russians are the problem and and immediately get away from us being the problem um and we can scapegoat something i just feel like it's it's very easy for a mob mentality to take place and for it just makes us feel better oh finally we've named the enemy and and now we can do something about it so i i think that's probably why they're jumping on board but um i i would have a hard time in the age we live in now if some kid went no it's aliens it's in my comic book <laughs> i think we would all kind of go yeah right kid <laughs> but uh but really i mean what they're saying it is just this flash of light something flew by they don't know what it is i mean it could be a plane that they think it's a, a comet or a meteor or something they don't know what it is but for whatever reason uh panic builds and it starts to get dark in the neighborhood and they still don't have power um just uh you know i think that that's part of the story too that you know the sun is setting and as the sun is setting on this late afternoon um i think that adds a little bit to the fear of the situation uh it's one thing to be without power for a few minutes but then it's another thing like um but what are we going to do tonight? There's no lights. <laughs> or for us, yeah. what am I going to do if I can't watch TV? <laughs> the power's up. Um, <laughs> things like that. Um, so this this other resident, the, the interesting thing about this story to them, and I think what starts to strike fear in them a little bit, and maybe why they're so quick to jump on board with this monsters or alien theory is it's not just the electric that's out their cars won't start either and things that are not connected in any way to the power in the town so um, another resident of the town Les Goodman he goes out and tries to start his car and it doesn't work and so he gets out and begins to walk back to the other residents but then his car starts on its own and this bizarre thing that happens makes Les the immediate object of everyone's suspicion. Like, whoa, why does his car start when nobody else's does? 
And so this one woman then begins to talk about how at late at night she's she's gotten up and seen Les standing out in his garden looking up at the sky. And they start saying, hmm, well, maybe he's got something to do with this. If That's odd behavior for him to be up in the middle of the night. Um, now, no one questions the lady. Why were you up in the middle of the night? Thank you. I was going to say, nobody thinks that. Yeah, maybe the yeah. lady is the alien because she like, nobody says that because it helps immediately to have a scapegoat. And so everybody yeah. starts getting real... Uh, accusing of less like your car starts and you don't sleep at night you're out in your garden looking up at the sky and so Steve who again is played by Claude Akins he always tries to be this voice of reason and diffuse the situation and prevent uh, from becoming this witch hunt which is really what it's turning into at this point because the whole crowd in the streets starting to look at less and less rightly so he warns the others that they are creating something ugly that they will not be able to control by casting him as a scapegoat and and by casting anyone really not just him and then uh you remember charlie farnsworth in the episode the the really loud obnoxious guy he uh he becomes fairly aggressive and he starts you know accusing other people he starts accusing steve again claude aiken's character uh somebody says something about you know we've been talking to your wife she says you've got this radio that none of us have ever seen that you're working on late into the night <laughs> he's probably a podcaster you know back in in his daytime yeah. and yeah. Uh, so he pressures steve about his hobby of building a radio that no one has ever seen and now suspicion starts to fall on steve as he sarcastically begins to remark that he talks to monsters from outer space on his radio you know like sure that's what i'm doing with my radio in my basement you guys are real smart <laughs> um so steve and the other neighbors begin to argue and uh, in any other comment you want to add at this point in the story we're about halfway through it at this point you know one other reason less comes under suspicion so quickly in addition to the fact that his car is the only one that starts is that he wasn't he was the only one who didn't come out onto the street when the uh, meteor right or whatever it was right. went overhead what? he was he uninterested they say <laughs> so so that gets used against him too which is just uh, an interesting snapshot of the dynamic about conformity that's going on through this whole episode too and i'm sure we'll oh, talk sure. more about that sure. he's not on, he's but, not uh, doing what we're doing so he must be the one to blame he's, he's not, not panicking so he that's right that's right so so let's just continue the the walkthrough of the episode this panic is building it seems like everyone is scapegoating the other person they're suspicious of their neighbors wondering if they're the cause of of uh, of, of what really is something if you would think about it again and not panic by the way mike it's really not much to panic over. There's 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 nobody attacking them. It's not anything except their power's not working, their cars aren't working. And so it's 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 not like somebody has come in and invaded or anything. So they're relatively minor things that are going on here, but it's this mystery. And so the panic begins to build even more and more uh and and as the darkness continues to descend and it gets darker they see this shadowy figure walking toward them in the dark and everybody kind of gets quiet and off in the distance you just hear footsteps you don't see a face you don't see anything and charlie this obnoxious one who keeps kind of instigating things and accusing everyone he grabs a shotgun and immediately shoots this shadowy figure that's walking towards them thinking it to be the monster that's coming down the street and then when the crowd, after they reach this uh, shadowy figure that has been shot and has fallen to the ground, they realize it's none other than Pete Van Horn who went to check on the gas station and see if the power was out there. He was returning from his scouting mission. So um, Charlie had shot him in the chest and it kills him instantly. And although Charlie insists that he didn't know and was trying to protect everyone, no one believes him because now Charlie's a murderer. <laughs> and um, and yeah. suddenly, this doesn't help Charlie's case, suddenly the lights <laughs> in Charlie's house come on and it's the only house where the lights come on. <laughs> and the crowd yeah. begins to panic and accuse him of being both a murderer and the monster responsible for the power outage. 
And then even Steve, who up to this point has has been trying to be the voice of reason, he can't defend Charlie for what he's done. Uh, so Charlie makes a run for his house while the other residents are chasing him. They're they're literally throwing stones at him. They're trying to stone him as he goes to his house. Um, one of them hits Charlie in the head, and he, and he starts bleeding. And it looks like ketchup on his head or chocolate syrup or something. But um, you know, special effects weren't quite what they are now. Um, but he's he's got this bleeding gas on his head and he's terrified and charlie being the brave one uh, as everyone's coming at him he says no it was the boy it was the boy who originally suggested the alien infiltration and and suddenly the other neighbors start to think yeah it was tommy tommy this boy he did it <laughs> and then uh to, as the episodes end that are starting to end now Lights begin flashing on and off in houses all throughout the neighborhood. Lawnmowers are starting. Car engines are starting and stopping for no reason. And and the mob, it just becomes hysterical. They're just terrified. And the residents are smashing windows. Um, they're taking up weapons. And, and it just just devolves into just a riot and so mayberry has now become uh the scene of of just utter panic and rioting and a mob scene and as they start taking up their firearms and they're just ready to shoot anybody they can and it's it's really quite eerie when you're watching the whole thing evolve this way yeah um any any further thoughts before we go to the clincher of the episode here well, no, you're right. It's got a real kind of Lord of the Flies quality yeah, it to does. it, doesn't it? Uh, you know, it, it, it's such a nice companion piece to some other Serling episodes because, like, you, you invoke Mayberry. Serling did have a very um, uh, strong interest in the past, in nostalgia mm-hmm. for the past. Uh, and there's other episodes of Twilight Zone, Walking Distance, um, of late, I think of Cliffordville. Uh, the, the, there's a town called Willoughby in one of the right, episodes. Yeah. Stop at Willoughby, where these are uh, very idealized, nostalgic. You know, the good old days kind of living. Uh, and usually, there's some cracks that show up in that one way or the other. It never turns out to be quite what you think. And the, the moral is, you can't yeah. go home again. Walking distance is a great example of that. One of the other really standout episodes of the show. Here, you start off in that kind of Willoughby, you know, Cliffordville um, storybook kind of place, and and it just becomes a total crucible of uh, descent into, you know, maybe savagery. Well, I don't think that no. is too strong a word by the end. Even even fifty years later, watching it, you know, when um, those last few moments on Main Street where we're having rapid cuts and the cameras tilted at an angle and the screams and the lights going off and on. It's really yeah. just uh, uh, yeah. madness, and it still has a very chilling chilling effect. Well, and, and let's get into the last scene of the episode now, because this is really the clincher of it. And uh, the, the scene at the end, it cuts to this nearby hilltop, and it's revealed that the mysterious meteor that had flown overhead in the beginning of the episode, it really was an alien spaceship. It, it was. So the boy was right. You know, doggone him, that comic book kid. It was It was monsters flying over. Um, and, and the two people who, the aliens that are on this craft, they're just observing. And they're watching the riot on Maple Street while using this device to manipulate the neighborhood's power. Basically, they're just kind of flipping the power switch on and off is all, is all they're doing on, on different things. They somehow have the technology to do this. Um, and it's just amazing how easily they're able to overcome these people just by taking away a few comforts of their life. Um, and so they, they comment on how it was easy to cre- create the paranoia and panic by turning off the electricity. And they conclude that the easiest way to conquer the planet is to let the people become their own worst enemies. And they also discuss the fact that there are many, many more Maple Streets on Earth. And and the closing narration, um, it, it's it's haunting, actually. Still, every time I hear it, and, and I'm going to read it right now, Rod Serling's closing narration says this, The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill. 
and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has the fallout has a fallout all of its own, for the children, and the children yet unborn, and the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the twilight zone, yeah, and that is. That is just haunting. <laughs> I mean, it really yeah, is. It's it is. it's one of the most well-written, I would say, commentaries. And I, I think it would have been around this time that McCarthyism was happening, come to think of it. Absolutely, absolutely. It was very much on the, kind of on the tail end of the, the witch hunts and uh, McCarthyism and the blacklisting yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah, that was very much upper mind and certainly. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah. and to be honest, there is sort of a a new McCarthyism kind of happening in our culture today, I think. And I feel like that's maybe why this is so relevant now. Um, I, I experience it at times in churches. Um, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll put it like this. There, at times it feels almost like if you want to be a member of us, make sure you sign this paper saying you are in wholehearted agreement to everything we believe uh, and don't uh -huh. doubt and never question this. If you do, we're going to take away your rights and privileges, you know, <laughs> type thing. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. when that kind of thing happens, it leaves little room for us to actually be able to explore and dialogue and have conversations for fear of being rejected. And, um, and it can create yeah. panic at times. And so we live in this culture where right now it's it always seems to be the worst every time a big election rolls around. So here we are in the time where everybody's talking about the presidency. It doesn't seem like anybody is a fan of any candidate right now. Everybody <laughs> is just, um, at least in my mind, it seems like everybody's just tired of it. I it's, Everybody's... It seems like everybody is supporting Trump and nobody is supporting Trump. And it's it's this weird uh -huh. dynamic right now in our culture. But it feels like the strategy is point out that someone else is the problem. You know, point yeah. out how they're the reason you're not making the income you should be. They're the reason your child is not healthy. They're the reason education isn't good. They're the reason this happens. And before you know it, if we can blame all our problems on somebody else and one particular party, um, it's just so much easier than saying we might have to do some hard work ourselves and actually see what the source of the problem yeah. is. Um, so if yeah. we could, I'd, I'd love to, to get your further thoughts, not only on this episode, but as I talked about a couple episodes ago with my friend Brandon, we were talking about this um, idea that's discussed in, in this book by Barry Glasner, and the name of the book, it's a very long title, um, it's called The Culture of Fear, and the subtitle is Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things, Crime, Drugs, Minorities, Teen Moms, Killer Kids, Mucant... Mutant microbes, plane crashes, road rage, and so much more. And uh, and quickly to recap what I said on that episode that comes from his book, um, his four basic premises in that book are that, number one, mass media creates panics and hysterias from a few isolated incidents. So think Maple Street for a second of a power outage. Sometimes it might be just simply the problem of the power went out. But the media can at times sensationalize things to the point of in people's imagination and a mob mentality happens and suddenly we've been invaded by aliens, <laughs> you know. Um, right. The second premise of his book is that anecdotal evidence takes the place of hard scientific proof, which often seems to happen. How many times do we see on Facebook some post about, you know, so-and-so huh. -so eats children for breakfast, you know, <laughs> and, and it's like, well, I read it on the internet, it must be true, um, must or, be true. and the third premise of, of, uh, of uh, Glasner is that the experts that the media trots out to make comments really don't have the credentials to be considered an expert, um, it would be sort of like, um, you know, walking out, um, Someone, I, well, I don't want to say any names because I feel like I'd be picking on somebody. But in theological circles, if if you were to to bring out somebody who's known as like a a Christian author or something, but every theologian in the world knows they don't know what they're talking about biblically, <laughs> like trot uh -huh. them out as the expert. While in the meantime, all the real experts are going, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, <laughs> you know. But the average layperson doesn't know that. So the fourth premise, finally, uh, is that entire categories of people are christened as innately dangerous, um, like like uh, in his 
uh, subtitle of his book, you know, crime, drugs, minorities, teen moms, killer kids, uh, mutant microbes, things like that. Um, so what Glasner uncovers in, in his book and his conversation is that our perception of danger has increased in, in our time, um, but our actual level of risk has not. Um, like everybody says for instance right now Michael and I'll I'll let you comment on this Um, I feel like everybody says this is the most dangerous time the world has ever known it's never been more dangerous you know like there's there's all Uh kinds of things that are happening when in reality if you just look at statistics and where we are in world history this is actually a much less dangerous time than it has ever been in all of world history. There are fewer murders. There's there's actually fewer. Uh, it doesn't look like this because of what we see that there's actually less persecution of Christians in the world than there has been historically at uh-huh. this time. Um, I'd I'd love to get your your thoughts on that and why you think that is that that we are constantly thinking and being told things are worse now than they ever have been. Well. This is this this touches on something about the episode that I, I hadn't really thought about until I sat down to watch it again in preparation for our conversation today. That uh, you know, on the one hand, as I said before, I'm not sure why. I mean, in, in, you 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 made the explanation of the story serving as an allegory absolutely dead on. That that makes sense to me. But why in the story they're so quick to mm-hmm. listen to Tommy? Uh, because it's like you said. <laughs> Blaster talks about people being trotted out to speak when they really have no right. authority to speak. It turns out, as you said, Tommy's right about the aliens coming, but he's dead wrong about the strategy right. they're using. You know, they're not in fact sending uh, fifth columnists from the great beyond, as, as Steve says <laughs> at one point. Um, so we do have this this problem of listening to people who maybe know you know maybe know a little bit about what they're talking about, but don't have the whole picture. And and um, this makes me think also just watching the episode as a as an artifact of 1960 television. Uh, it's a very homogeneous hmm. community, yeah. Maple Street, that 300 block of Maple Street. And it occurred to me that maybe if if they had not been so non-diverse, hmm. they might have handled this crisis differently and might have yeah. handled it better. Um, That's true. Because they're just so... they. Unless they uh, have interactions with people at work, when the men, this being the 1960s, go to work, uh, if they're interacting with people who are different than they are, maybe that would help some. But in terms of their little enclave right there, they're all white. They're all uh, well off, upper middle class. It looks like um, they, you know, they're all just very much like mm-hmm. each other. And I think, I think. Part of why we may be hearing that it's a dangerous time is we are having to, and I'm I'm speaking out of my own experience too, of course. I can't speak for everybody, but um, we're 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 being. um, I don't want to say forced because it's not a bad thing. We have opportunities to deal with diversity more than we ever have before in some ways. The demographics of uh, the American population are shifting so that by, I think, by 2044, no one racial or ethnic group will will any longer make up a majority of the Hmm. population. And actually, for our kids, that's going to be true by something like 2020. Um, So the demographics are shifting very rapidly. Um, The Internet has opened up exposure to different people, cultures, points of view. Uh, so so in the real world and online, we're just seeing more... I'm, again, speaking as a white male, I'm aware of more cultural diversity hmm. than I used to be. And so that can create anxiety. Um, I see this in geek culture some. I don't know about you, but I know when, um, when, when, when Disney bought Star Wars and Marvel relaunched the Star Wars comic... And the casting for The Force Awakens was announced. I heard, not not a lot, but I heard some grumblings online, in forums, on podcasts. Oh, they're forcing diversity down our throats, even in <laughs> Star Wars. You know, as though this, this great uh, space adventure that everybody loves, reflecting the world as it is today, is, right. was a bad thing. <laughs> um, 
and I could get off on a whole other tangent about how within the Star Wars universe, people who you know, the people who reject diversity aren't the rebels. They're not the good guys. Right. They're the bad guys. The Empire wants homogeneous cookie-cutter communities. That's like true. Maple Street. But, uh, but so it's disheartening because diversity... I remember in the 90s, there was a lot of talk about toleration, as though if we could just tolerate each other, that would be a mm-hmm. great achievement. And, and tolerance is better right. than non-tolerance. <laughs> I believe that. But, but diversity can be a very strengthening and empowering and thing that makes life interesting and and it just is the way the world is i i believe it's the way god designed the world to be diverse and uh god is diverse in god's Mm -hmm. own self father the son and the holy spirit so unified but but there's diversity there so i feel like i've lost no no that's fine this is this is great some of my initial thoughts watching this homogeneous community crumbling um because, because in part they're all so alike, they've never had to deal with difference or or not understanding and and uh, yeah, they've never had to well, work at that. So I want that was maybe that's one reason for Maple Street. That, that's downfall. very true. <laughs> I, I have a friend um, that you know, ironically enough, he's part of the geek community too. He works at the comic shop that I go to quite regularly. Uh, nearby in the city, you know, in the little town of, uh, it's actually a village of Yellow Springs where uh, Rod Sterling went to school, ironically enough. Um, he being a black man, um, and he's he's the nicest guy. Like, if anybody ever met him and knows him, they just know, like, he's he would do anything for you. He's one of those uh, very sweet people that um, is the the opposite of what you would think of as threatening i'll just put it that way but he's pretty tall he's got broad shoulders um and and he's black and you know he he is uh he has a very interesting perspective on things and when we'll talk about white privilege and things like that 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 white people as you're talking about diversity we don't understand because we're white people <laughs> you know we don't get oh. that that we have a leg up on things just simply by the fact that we're right. a certain color um and he he said we probably don't know what it's like i i remember hearing him talk one time and saying you probably don't know what it's like just to be walking down you know the street and all of a sudden you're hearing all these car doors lock around you you know just because you know he's walking to get a sandwich or something and uh or or to be pulled over he's had the experience a few times of being pulled over for no reason other than just to be pulled over you know and uh to be checked on and and that's not an experience that i think i've ever had anytime i've been pulled over it's been i've been in the wrong you know headlights been out something has has gone wrong Uh um and jim wallace has a a new book that's very interesting I, i think it's called race and Racism, America's Sin, or America's uh, uh-huh. Original Sin, or something. I can't remember the subtitle right now. But the gentleman that he has open up the the, the book with a preface uh, is is a black lawyer who I, I think is in Chicago. I, I probably should have researched this before I spouted off about it a little more. But wherever he is, um, he's a very uh, prominent lawyer. He's someone who cares deeply about the poor and is working and... Uh, this gentleman writes in the book that he said he was on his way home from work one day from his law office. He's wearing a suit and tie, and um, he just is listening to some music. He's exhausted after a long day. He pulls into his neighborhood, which is a, an upper-middle-class neighborhood. He's sitting in his car, and he just decides he just wants to finish out the CD that he's listening to in his car. He sits his head back. He kind of tilts his seat back. He's just exhausted. And he's there just a few minutes in the car, and somebody knocks on his window. And and it's a police officer. And he opens the door, and and, uh, the guy makes him get out of the car, makes him spread his arms out on top of the car. He's, you know, know, don't make an effing move, you effort. You know, he's just, like, yelling at him, all these expletives and things. And... The guy remains calm, and, and he says, you know, this is my house. I live here. I'm a lawyer. And uh, and the guy basically tells him to shut up. It keeps cussing at him. He's calling it in, um, trying to find out what's going on. Finally, neighbors are coming out. They're wanting to see what's going on, and they he finally gets the information, uh, not believing.
believing this man, but finally believing when he gets confirmation from others that this man really does live here and that he is, you know, kind of a prominent lawyer in the area and whatnot. And the police officer just says to him very angrily, you got off easy this time and and leaves and and jim wallace uh has said about that story in his book he said that never happens to me as a white man that has never happened to me and yet like my friend uh who i spoke about a minute ago and numerous other people that are people of color they have had those experiences time and time again uh in this country and so it is very interesting you mentioned that we don't like to acknowledge the fact that mayberry is built upon the graves of native americans you know (laughs) When you think about what what that means to us and we have this nostalgia about when things were peaceful and loving and perfect, well, that never really existed. Um, We've always kind of had what we had, often by wrongdoing, and and for better or for worse, the the white people have just got it better right now. And I I agree completely about the problem of diversity and what we're facing. And and I feel like there's no place in the world that's less diverse than churches right now. Um, And that's that's not true universally, but, you know, I would love to see a a less white congregation. um, And and we do have a few here and there, and and we're getting better, I think, about reaching out. But I I love the point that you made was if they had been a little more diverse, and a little more understanding of people who were not like them exactly. They're, they may have gone a long way towards calming the panic of what was going on around them in this scenario. Um, so, so no, good thoughts. I don't think you got off track at all. I, I thought that was brilliant. Um, well, well, you're kind. Uh, it, it did make me wonder. Actually, it's interesting. You know, um, there have been two attempts. Well, not attempts. They did, there have been two revivals of the Twilight Zone. For television. One was in the 80s and one was in the, the 2003-2004 season. I believe it only lasted one season. Um, that latter revival straight out remade a couple mm. of episodes. Um, and one of them was this, uh, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Now, they changed the title. Uh, the Monsters Are oh. On Maple Street. It could just be a, uh, a subtle difference. I don't know that there's any great meaning there. But they did give it a very diverse mm. cast. Um, interracial couples and black and white and Asian, um, you know, it was a very mixed cast, and yet the story still followed the overall same trajectory. So, you know, maybe my thought experiment is wrong. Although um, the cast of this version of the show uh, was ethnically diverse, they were all the same socioeconomic strata, and uh, you know, they had all these things in common, and and how. It, how it happened was there was no no analog to the character of Les Goodman in this version. They didn't use Serling's teleplay. They they gave him story credit and then wrote hmm. a whole new script. And there was a, a house at the end of the street that had just been bought um, by uh, a couple that nobody saw. They didn't have kids. <laughs> so um, uh, they, they were suspicious that way because they weren't, you know, um, part of the Civic Soccer Association. Uh, nobody could pronounced their name nobody knew their name um they, they you know they never never left the house it seemed like they put up a chain link fence which was unsightly and just unneighborly you know and um anyway so this this house becomes the focal point of uh, the suspicion and the paranoia as the situation mm. builds follows the same as i said basic trajectory as the original episode but it turns out um you know, what's so great about the original version is it can be an allegory for so mm-hmm. many things. In the 2003 version, um, there's a lot of explicit talk about fear of terrorism. It's t- two yeah. years after the attacks um, in New York and Pennsylvania and D.C. In fact, uh, when there's a suggestion made of, well, why don't we call the police or the government and see if they know anything about this, um, one character says, oh, they've got their hands full at mm. ground zero. We'll take care of this ourselves, you know. Um, and at the end, it, I'll give, I'll give, I'll spoil it. But uh, at the end, it's not aliens who have caused the problem. It's the U.S. Oh, government. Wow. They're they're manipulating the power <laughs> to see how isolated communities would respond to a perceived terrorist attack. Wow. So. I've only seen that remake of it once. I don't know if I really yeah. liked it or not. It's it's nowhere near as good as the original, but it's 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 str- I was not expecting that. that well, twist. yeah. Oh, well, you okay. would. This time it's our own government doing doing this, uh, which kind of 
in a way, builds a whole other level of paranoia onto what sure. you already have, you know, so going on. You're actually so, instigating more <laughs> paranoia, but it but it is right. It might so, be uh, interesting at that time too, because they probably weren't too many years removed, probably within 15 years or so of that War of the Worlds broadcast with Orson Welles, um, where people were panicking about aliens. You know, I don't and and that wow. that story is just legendary about you know people going out and shooting water towers and stuff because they thought it was aliens right. that were coming down the street. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, in in an age where maybe we weren't all quite as aware. I mean, you're aware of things in different ways, but there was no internet. There wasn't, you know, at least at that time, widespread television sets or anything. So you just had what's on the radio. And in, in a sense, the world still did have a lot of mystery to it. And it, it was, there was, seems to have been a lot of fascination with sci-fi and aliens and things at that time and people maybe wanting to believe. Um, and so I, I wonder if that was part of, Sterling's reason for using aliens too. It is very interesting in a modern context to use like the government or whoever, and and I, like you said, that does create a whole other sort of paranoia when you're doing that. Uh, it's a whole lot easier to name people that don't really exist, <laughs> which is uh, part of the problem right. with having those conversations. But no, I hadn't I hadn't seen that episode. So that's very interesting to me that they took that take on it for sure. It, it does change the outcome completely. So. Yeah. Well, what are we uh, what are we missing in this conversation? I, I I'd like to think that we've covered some good ground today. Uh, I never know exactly how to offer a solution to these problems, but I know that this paranoia exists, and I see it in our culture, and it, it grieves me quite a lot. I I absolutely hate this time of year every time it comes around, uh, just because of. Everything you see is political ads and attack ads. I have been doing my my dead level best to avoid it and even avoid uh, almost all conversations on a political level because I want, uh, as a minister of the gospel, I want people to understand that the kingdom of God is its own politic. Um, that there is this yeah. sense in which in which God's kingdom. Um, we don't understand this very well because we're so ingrained to think in terms of Republican, Democrat, Independent, or whatnot. Um, but to break down the word, and I, I guess I'm just picking on politics right now. What politics is, it just means the way that a group of people organize themselves. It's the way that they choose to make life work together, so to speak. So in a sense, if we were to break that down to a small level, Maple Street and that neighborhood in that episode, um, there was a politic involved in the way that these people ordered themselves, the way that they lived their life uh, in that neighborhood. So if, if you just wanted to, I think, take that and make that microcosm, that small neighborhood, let's call that a nation <laughs> of itself. Uh -huh. These people have to decide how they're going to order themselves so that when crises right. like, say, the power outages or whatever happen, they know how to respond as people in that situation. I think what so many Christians in our environment and in our country don't realize is that's what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of God. That if you are the people of God, you are a colony of heaven here on earth. And the way you organize yourself is not the way that the Republican Party tells you to go, or the way that the Democrats tell you to go, or the way the NRA tells you to go, or the way that um, libertarians tell you to go. There is a completely different politic involved for the people of God where we have things like the Apostles' Creed that become our constitution. Uh, we have things like the Sermon on the Mount that that really is our Bill of Rights, so to speak. And, it, and it, it's not so much concerned about rights, but about those who are blessed and those who have and those who have not. And the sad thing about when we look at the situation and what we don't often hear in the words of Jesus is Jesus is often talking about these powerful people who are going to be brought low. And I would say for most of us, especially white middle class Americans in the U.S., we are those people that Jesus is talking about being brought low. <laughs> and uh, we always want to say it's somebody else. It's their problem. But Jesus is speaking to us and he's saying, no, 
I've got the finger pointed at you. How are you going to help the poor? How are you going to make sure that right. the poor in spirit um, have their needs met? How are you going to take care of when you pray these prayers, give us this day our daily bread? What are you going to do with your excesses of bread to those that don't have any? Um, you know, it's it's not a matter of, of building walls. It's about opening arms. And, uh, and we see that so clearly in the cross of Jesus, literally arms stretched out right. for his people right. so um i don't know where else to take the conversation today do you have any further comments on what we've been discussing well just to respond a little bit to what you said there at the end i mean one of the phrases we used to use in the presbyterian church usa as we described what the church was it's no longer officially on the books but it's a great piece of language and i still hang on to it is that the church is a provisional demonstration of what God intends for all humanity. And so, you know, when at our best the church is feeding the poor, welcoming each each other including the stranger, you know, loving each other, uh, mutual mutually building up, uh reconciling mm. when we're doing those things, you know, that's the politic God is going to bring uh and and yes, for sure, um God's kingdom, God's reign is greater than any human political system or economic system or any way we as humans can organize mm. ourselves. But we, I think, I would like the church to to uh, contribute positive models and suggestions to the right. political, the human political realm to say it can be done yeah. differently and it can be done yeah. better. And we're not lifting ourselves up. We're saying, you know, this is what we've been taught by God as we have seen God in Christ and so we live our lives this way as yeah. a result and you know that's yeah. a tall order but but uh, Jesus parables about the leaven and the mustard seed you know the kingdom on earth <clears throat> the kingdom on earth begins in small ways and then God gives the growth uh, but we have so so while we don't bring the kingdom ourselves we can do right. some things right. exactly. <laughs> you know um, and 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 and, and some congregations and churches are doing a whole lot of things. Um, well, and I... Oh, what, sorry. No, what, you, you go sorry, ahead. I'll ahead. finish up with what I was going to say. So, Yeah, just one last thing I wanted to inject. And I, I hate to keep coming back to, to Tommy in the episode, but it really just stuck in my craw that why are they listening to this kid? <laughs> um, because, yeah, he's right. As I said, he's right about aliens, but he's, you know, which... Um, the adults on Maple Street do a colossal job of of failing to yeah. be adults for that kid. I think he's the only kid we see. Well, no, we do see a few others, but he's the main kid we see on that episode. But, you know, they they, they abdicate their responsibility That's to be true. grown-ups. Because what they should say is, well, that sounds like a really great comic book. <laughs> it pains me to say this. <laughs> you understand? But, but that's a comic book. You know, that's not yeah. real life. Um, and so, so by... by um, for whatever reason, again, I understand the larger allegorical purpose, but for whatever reason in the story, they just immediately latch on to that explanation. Massive right. fail. And so we could do better than that as, as Christians, as, as, as adult right. Christians especially, to say there's a different way of responding to crises, of responding to otherness, of responding to diversity. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of my favorite lines watching the episode this time was that last line of Serling's opening narration. That you that you read so well that the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came, calm and yeah. reflection, seem to be qualities not overly valued in American society today, uh, which is sad because think about our founders. Uh, there were passions running high about independence, etc. But they were there were some calm and rational and reflective arguments mm -hmm. made for why this nation yeah. should exist and. You know, now we're facing um, arguments about the various relationship of the, the branches of government. Well, the separation of powers and the branches of government, that was all set up in a calm mm -hmm. and reflective way, I believe. I, I haven't read all the history. Maybe there's <laughs> stuff I don't know. But, you know, if given a chance, <laughs> I think our system is still salvageable yeah. and workable. And I'd certainly rather live in a participating uh, representative democracy than any other system. So, you know, again, not equating it with God's sure. reign or God's kingdom. Well, and but, but, again, I 
being calm and reflective, I would say, is one thing I'd like to take away from this episode and sure. say to the church, let's model that for the rest of society because we all need some yeah. models right now of being calm Everybody and take a breath. It's okay. We can right. Let's think about this and, and see where it takes us. And I, just to speak in closing into what you were saying, um, we were studying at church not too long ago um, the stories in the book of Daniel. And when you think about you know, the Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and various other stories that we see in the Old Testament, I think that that is an, an interesting way of looking at the Christian's place. Uh, if, if, if you look at now where Christians are, um, how do we live now that we're in Babylon? You know, it's it, Daniel was part of... Um, let, let's say the political system in a sense. He was one of the, the people that worked for the king. Um, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same thing. They were in that process. But in those moments when there were things that they knew went against uh, their God, there were times where, all right, well, if it means following you in this or going to my death, so be it. Because um, I would rather lay down in a lion's den for the night than to be untrue to God, no matter what my government's telling me. Uh, or I would rather face the fiery furnace, and you know whether God protects me or not, I'd rather go there than go against what God's telling me in the midst of that. And I, I think that's a very interesting model for those of us who are, in a sense, uh, living in exile in a government that's that's not Christian or in a, a society that's that's kind of post-Christian, where we can still protect participate but at the same time there's a higher calling than what we answer to um than this particular right. place and so I, I think maybe that's a good thought for us maybe it would do us some good to study books like that again and be reminded of uh of people who had a place in their government but still had their ultimate allegiance with the god that they served and that made all the right. difference in the way that they helped to rule and 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 use their power in that kingdom so well, yeah. Michael, thank you so much for we, we've talked for over an hour now. It's unbelievable, but I really enjoyed our conversation. I have wanted to do an episode on that Twilight Zone episode for a long time now, and it just felt like it was the right moment in time to do it. So thank you so much for being one of the voices in my head this week. Thank you for joining me here this week on the Voices in My Head podcast. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com, follow me on Twitter at rickleyjames, like my artist page on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames, and keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on amazon.com. Make sure to follow my calendar on the website, and if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace, who raised Christ from the dead, strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.